Hello, everyone. Thanks uh, for joining us for another week of Hope Interrupted, the podcast. We are here today uh, with someone that you may uh, recognize if you're listening from from our uh, friends in Cincinnati or Louisiana or even uh, Mississippi. Uh, and so before I introduce our guest, I want to talk to you, Jennifer, because you are out there in Taos, New Mexico this morning, and we got up early to talk about uh, our podcast and what we do. So, good morning. Good morning, Byron and Sharice. I am in at eight thousand feet in Taos, New Mexico, where we've still we're still coming into spring. Not a whole lot's blooming, but it's still beautiful. And glad to be here. Before we get into the real intent of the program, I'll do my weekly blurb on our book. Hope Interrupted, Byron and I have coming out, available now in pre-sales, but um, also uh, available officially in the beginning of May. Today, this show and life for us is about stories of hope, and um, I'm honored to work with Byron, my working husband and my BFF. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. um, go to www.hopeinterrupted.com to learn more about our work, and thanks for being here today. Thanks, Jennifer. You know, we we um, we did write this book um, over six months, and we were we were when when things started to happen in this country, it felt like some there was some kind of an inflection point that we wanted to record. And so, you know, as we as we developed this podcast, we wanted to also talk about you know stories of hope, and our idea was to to have guests who can provide that context and and I can't think of a better guest that we have today uh, to, to help us provide that context than Sharice. Good morning, Sharice. How are hey, you? Hey, good morning. I'm wonderful. It's humid here and hot and you're in so New Orleans. So. Yeah, in New Orleans. And uh, I just found uh, as a welcome back a snake in the backyard. I was telling Jennifer. <laughs> oh my god. So, of course, if that, if that doesn't say welcome back to New Orleans, I don't know what does. <laughs> you know, Sharice, we, in Louisiana, you and I are Louisiana natives, and I know the thing that used to terrify us were mm -hmm. the legendary copperheads that would chase you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, th thankfully, I texted my gardener, and he said that it's not a, a copperhead. He said it, it's probably a little, uh, some, some snake, he said, but it's not venomous. But that yeah. doesn't mean I freaked out any less. Uh, yeah. It's like someone who says the dog doesn't bite. I'm like, well, it has teeth, doesn't it? <laughs> no, right? Dog's gonna, bite. Dog's gonna bite. So, so you know, this this podcast is 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 it's available everywhere. So people will recognize you if if they're listening from Cincinnati. They'll recognize you as a former anchor anchor here on Fox 19. Yeah. Um, yeah, and or or if they um, are listening in Louisiana, they can recognize you right now as the main anchor, six o'clock, uh, six thirty, and whenever else you you're needed right on uh, yeah. WWL TV, which is you know the leading station that I knew about when I was in, in Louisiana. Yes. And yes. and so you know, thank you so much for talking to us because one of the things that we want to talk about today is sort of on the heels right now George Floyd is um the the, the George Floyd murder trial is happening and yeah. 
shortly after he died, similar to when we started writing, you thought up um, a, a documentary, you started a documentary series called The Talk, when people just yes. really need to, to talk about their feelings. Yeah, and you know, I credit a lot of that to my news director, Keith Espros, who who really wanted us to discuss, um, and he's Keith Espros and Todd Smith, my general manager, I have two people who really said we need to see, who witnessed the murder of George, George Floyd, and who said we need to see, we need people to understand what's going on in America, because it seemed like for the first time, and this happened at a time where we're in the midst of a pandemic, so a lot of us are at home or we're working from home or our televisions are on. We're watching television more. We're watching the news more. And we have more people on social media. So people witness this video, which we said eight minutes and 20 seconds. But um, in following the Derek Chauvin trial, we noticed that it was not eight minutes and 20 seconds. It was actually, I think, nine minutes um, that he knelt on George Floyd's neck. So more than nine minutes and nine minutes and 40 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. So we had people who were interested and in learning more. And, and the best way to put this is to is how is what the black experience is like in this country. Why black people are on the streets shouting Black Lives Matter, why black people are protesting, um, talking about the defunding of the police department, talking about you know unfair policies. You know, we have people who have done this, who are, who are talking about the microaggressions, the bias. We needed people to understand and we wanted people to say it in their voice. So when my news director spoke with me and said we wanted to talk to uh, several people uh, about their experience, I said, you know, if we're going to do this, then we have to give them an opportunity to amplify their voices, to talk about what it means to truly be them, what it means to live in black skin, how your innocence um, which we saw in the Philando Castile case with the little girl who was in the car when Philando was shot and killed by police officers and even put in the back of a police unit when her mother was arrested, even though the mother did nothing wrong. And she she's maybe, what, five, six years old, trying to comfort her mother after witnessing the murder of a man right next to her, how the innocence of Black children are ripped away so easily. You know, how do you preserve that innocence? How, as a black man or as a black woman, and, and Byron, we've talked about this before, walking in newsrooms, walking in, in offices, you know, walking into a corporate America and still having to face certain biases, certain microaggressions, you know, not being able to fully express yourself, not being able to, because you don't want to be marked as angry or hard to work with, which is something I've been called before, of all people, me. <laughs> I've been called before, you know, I making people uncomfortable and people not saying that um, and people not saying that, you know, honestly, you're uncomfortable because this is a black woman who decided to voice her opinion to share what she feels about something or to disagree with you, not being able to disagree with the person. Um, as a journalist, we've talked about this and, and we've had several black journalists still talking about this, having to make the choice between being either a black woman or man and a journalist. Um, that is something that we face to this very day. You know, we are discouraged from focusing too much on black stories, even though, I mean, honestly, there is a story to be told there because so much of our history has been erased. So I wanted people to really share their feelings and share, especially, and I think um, Kiana Armstrong and the talk, I think really touched a lot of hearts because 
she shared the experience of what it means to be a black mother. And she has this beautiful young black son. Um, and, and he's just such a smart kid and so full of life and so much joy and so phenomenal. But she wonders, you know, as a black mother, when that innocence will be ripped away, when that innocence will be taken away from her. And we wanted people to understand this is, this is not a fairy tale. You know, and these people all come from different backgrounds and, and we chose people who are of different backgrounds, who came from different homes, different neighborhoods, but they have a same shared black experience. And that black experience dates all the way back to when our parents were children, you know, the talk that we use to keep our kids safe, to make sure they got back home. And that's why I wanted to reiterate uh, the conversation that Emmett Till's mother at the beginning had with Emmett before he left uh, Chicago to go down to Money, Mississippi. Um, I wanted people to understand that she did have a talk with him because as a black child, he did not understand at the time, though Chicago still, still had its race issues, um, but they are a little bit more progressive, um, well, a lot more progressive than we were uh, down here in the South. So sending him down there, saying things like, don't look a white woman in the eye. If a white person walks in front of you, step on the sidewalk and let them walk by. Um, don't talk back. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. You know, these were things that were done so that he could just stay alive. And, and, and it's not as if, if he were to do any of these things, he deserved to be hurt or murdered, but it was shown as a sign of disrespect. And usually that's how people, um, that's, they use any sign of disrespect, which we see what happened with Emmett, um, to, to, to act on violence against them you know, anything. So you have to basically keep to yourself, keep your head down. Don't say much. Don't look people in the eye. You know, don't be disrespectful. Don't give off any sign of disrespect. Those conversations that Black families have in their homes consistently with their, in which the conversation has evolved. You know, we're obviously not saying that to our children now, but now we're doing certain things like, you know, looking at police officers, pulling kids over, you know, hands on the steering wheel, you know, just, you know, don't do anything unless they tell you to do it because we can see, and we're not making it up, we can see how this can be dangerous for young black men and women in America. It happens so often. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, even with, it, it's, it's really just frustrating how much it happens. And even with compliance, unfortunately, even with compliance, it can still lead to murder or you being, put in jail or what, anything. So, I mean, I think it's, I think with the talk, we hoped to make people understand this is why we do what we do. This is why we feel these things. This dates all the way back. You know, we're in a country that was never made for us. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to adjust. We have to react this way and do these things in order to keep ourselves safe and to keep our kids safe. And these are the conversations that our parents had to share with us, which I'm sure in white households, their parents have not had to say those things. You know, they, their parents have not had to share, have those same conversations to talk about how to stay safe, how to make it home, how to stay out of prison, you know, how to, you know, not continuously get kicked out of school. So, you know, their school to prison pipeline is a very real thing. You know, how to, to keep your job, you know, that conversation evolves from childhood to your college years to adulthood. And, and it covers your life. It yes, does color your life. It, covers, it, it is your entire life. It is your entire life. And we wanted to show people all of those signs that even in 2021, or at the time in 2020, 
these conversations are still being had because we're seeing the, the, the result of, of what can happen to our kids, what can happen to you as a, an adult um, if, if you're on the wrong side of the law, the wrong side of town, if you just so happen to look the wrong way or say something the wrong way, or you know, if you're mentally ill, what can happen to you? I mean, it's so many things that can happen. So we wanted people to understand truly what it means to be black in this country. You know, Therese, will you, will you, um, will you explain to our audience a little where they can see the talk? Because I, I do, we do want to make sure people know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can watch a talk on YouTube, um, my YouTube channel. Um, if you go to YouTube and type in WWL TV, the talk, uh, the documentary is up on YouTube right now uh, and WWLTV.com. Uh, we've been sharing it everywhere and it has been i mean it's been phenomenal everyone has been tuned has tuned in we've had some people who obviously have issues <laughs> and we and we share that you know we had some people who obviously did some people who still didn't quite understand or um they have their own biases you know and you know you hear people say uh well if you would just comply with police officers if you would just do what needs to be done. You know, what your parents teach you. My parents told me when a police officer pulled you over and listened to everything they say, like I go back to Philando Castile. What did he do wrong? He, I mean, he pulled over. He, they asked if there's a firearm in the car. I'm, he was going to go just here, officer. I would just want to give you the firearm before he had an opportunity to do anything. He was dead. So, I mean, you have people who don't quite understand the microaggressions and the bias that some people might have towards black people. But uh, yeah, if you wanna watch it for yourself and afterwards we had a phenomenal conversation um, right after the talk, all the conversation continues. We had Wendell Pierce join us, uh, one of our subjects mm -hmm. in the talk, Ken Barnes, who's an attorney. Um, we Pierce had- The actor. Actor, Pierce. Wendell Pierce. Mm -hmm. He's uh, been, he's a New Orleans native and he's been in several movies, Broadway shows, um, a very, very popular man. And I think he is actually now portraying B.B. Uh, King uh, oh, in, in an upcoming biopic. But um, we I remember had, him in Boomerang and I'm dating myself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was also in The Wire, which everybody yes. wanted to recognize The Wire. Wow. Yes. He so was, he um, he was, I mean, we had a conversation. We included the chief of police here, who is now a black man. And, mm -hmm. you know, we really got a different perspective. So if you go to YouTube and type in WWLTV to the talk, you'll find the entire documentary and you'll also find uh, the conversation um, that happened afterwards. And it was just, I mean, it was a riveting conversation. We, we really hit hard and hit the nail hard on a lot of things. And we talked about what we need to do in order to see change in this country. And, you know, change, I don't think necessarily starts with us while we do have these conversations. It's on the other end, you know, we don't share those biases with other people. It's the bias that we have against us. So I think that people need to take that conversation. And then, which is what I hope they did is to take what we're talking about back to your homes, you know, back to your children back to your families and talk about this and make them understand this so we don't raise another group of, of white men or women who are segregating themselves um, unwill unknowingly or who have biases against black and brown people 
because of them not being integrated with them in schools, not being around them, sharing racist jokes about them, being afraid of them, because that fear can ultimately lead to someone's death. You know, we all, we, Jennifer and I talked a lot about um, how when you know someone, it's, yeah. it's, it's much less, uh, it's, it's, it's harder, it's much harder to, to, to dislike them or hate them once you get to know someone. Yeah. I was really intrigued by one or two of your subjects, uh, Travis and uh, Marty Mayer. Yeah, Antonio Travis and Marty Mayer. Yeah, Antonio Travis and yeah. Marty Mayer. Who couldn't um, be more different? <laughs> fascinating. Talk, yeah. talk about talk about their relationship and what you learned from that relationship because I understand that you know it didn't start out that way and, and no. they sort of emerged as sort of fellow travelers, didn't they? Yes, they. Uh, so, as we as the talk evolved into your series, where we started doing stories consistently about race in America, we wanted to make sure, and I and I and I reiterated to everyone that we cannot just have black people in the talk, because you know, essentially, while the story you know does talk about our microaggressions and our biases, we're not having the conversation with ourselves. We need to share these stories with other people and let make other people understand. And it just so happened that Marty Mayer was someone who, after the George Floyd murder, after that happened, he, his family, and, and we talk about this, he has his own story where he writes this open letter. Um, and if you're familiar with New Orleans, then, you, well, the New Orleans metro area, then you know that he's, he's from the North Shore you know, of the area. So this is an area that's predominantly white, um, an area where you may have predominantly white, predominantly older, sort of a, a suburb. Um, and actually you had a lot of people, I think he's in Mandeville, you had a lot of people during white flight that went up to that area, but that's a whole different topic. But um, but he, he grew up in the area of the era of segregation. He grew up in the era uh, of Jim Crow. So, when he saw this, he's, he always thought, well, I'm a good guy, you know, you're a good person. And that's what a lot of people think. I'm white, I'm a good person. I don't treat people poorly. You know, I, I talk to black people, I work alongside black people. So I obviously don't have this issue, but he also, after watching George Floyd's death said, I need to, I'm trying to understand. And he wrote an open letter saying, I'm trying to understand how do we do this better? I want to understand what it means to be young and black in America. How can I help? What can I do? Because I'm an older white man in the majority white community, but even I can see that something is wrong. And I now finally feel like I can say something about this or do something about this. I don't think I can sit by. Antonio Travis, on the other hand, young black man grew up in the projects in New Orleans. Um, Antonio is very outspoken. Um, he's a person who who he runs uh, an organization uh, for young black men here in New Orleans, um, and he is a person who has always been pro-black. So you have these two people who grew up in these two different worlds, who and 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 we wanted to bring them together because I said, you know, honestly, and, and Marty has no idea how someone like Antonio sees the world how he sees white people, how he experienced the world, what his experiences were. 
So to have those two come together and to sit down and to have that conversation, um, and we really let them, I said, you know, prepare questions for yourselves. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't give them any questions. I said, you know, let's make this a conversation. Obviously, it was a little awkward because, again, you're talking about two people who are nothing alike, who are in this world trying to figure each other out. But the thing is, we haven't, we're having the conversation with them because in order for us to move forward, we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. We have to be able to see each other and really see each other and not, it like, not let it just stop at being skin deep. So those two coming together is so great. I saw Antonio the following week or week after, he brought some of the young men of his organization to Mandeville. So, you know, he brought them, instead of Marty coming into their, their neighborhood, Marty brought them there. You know, come over to my area, come to where I live, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that this conversation that is, that is continues. Cool. They're working, uh, from what I told, I'm told by Antonio, they're working together. And uh, I'm thrilled about that. I'm so thrilled. And, and we're going to do a follow up with him. I just haven't, I want to give the, the relationship time to grow. Obviously, it's very new. They're Facebook friends now. I see them talking to each other. They've taken pictures together. Um, I want to see this grow into something so that we can actually create some change where people don't look at people or people like Marty don't look at people like, like Antonio and they're fearful or they're clutching purses or they're crossing the street so they don't have to be next to them because they're fearful of what they might do. You're speaking something that Byron and I, boy, I'm having a sound issue. <laughs> Something that Byron and I really touch on in our book, which is making connections, reaching out to people who are different. Yeah. And the work you're doing is commendable. When we started this book, one of our objectives was to get Americans to really understand one another. Yeah. And we had an editor say to us, because the work of our book, Byron and I write back and forth to each other about all kinds of things. We had an editor say, well, the nation's just not going to start a letter writing campaign. Yeah. And we thought, you know, why not? You kind of start small. You kind of start yeah. small. You do the little things. And then maybe that escalates into some ultimate understanding. I wanted to ask you, um, speaking of uh, people making life changes. So you're from Louisiana. Yeah. You moved to Cincinnati, Ohio for work, which I'm not there anymore, but is my hometown and Byron's current hometown and yours for a bit. And yeah. now you come back to Louisiana. What's that like? Yeah. Well, it's not. I don't have it. I don't have a use for my snow boots anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the number one thing. The winters are certainly different in New Orleans. If it gets below 60 degrees, I mean, we're freezing. You know, in Cincinnati, it's like you can still pull out the shorts and everybody's fine. Um, but and opposed to the weather, Cincinnati, to me, even though, you know, and, and I don't know how other people feel, um, even though I, I don't know necessarily how to put it. Is it Midwest? Is it North? Because Cincinnati still gave a very Southern uh, vibe to me. I don't know if other people feel that way. Um, but the answer, the answer is we do. And I actually have a line in the book that says, Cincinnati, you're confused. Are you the most Northern city in the South or the most Southern city in the North? Yeah. It's confused. 
it's a southern city, especially given the fact that you have the river and then you can cross and there's Kentucky there. And also given um, the history, while I was up there, I did a documentary about the history of jazz music, how it migrated to the Cincinnati, um, you know, Cincinnati area. And it was, it, it was just telling that story and just seeing, first of all, listening to the jazz musicians say, you know, jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong and whatnot would come up to the Cincinnati, but they would have to pay them to play in the black clubs. And even having the white musicians make their differentiate between what clubs white musicians played in, in which they said they played cocktail jazz. And then after the white musicians would play there, uh, like the Cincinnati Cotton Club, they would go to the the clubs on the West End, you know, this right, is really right. kind of where it all culminated, which is really weird because I was just up there. Now there's a soccer stadium there. In there, isn't it? Yeah. Peace, by the way. I remember that piece. It was, yeah. it was wonderful. I learned a lot. And and to know that you know that they they would you know migrate. So that you had you still had your segregation. Learning about Little Africa and Cincinnati, um, the the Margaret. Oh goodness. Is it Margaret Garner's story? Margaret Garner's story, yeah. She uh, uh, was based off of uh, Tony Morrison's beloved based yes. on Margaret Garner's story. Where the and, I mean, just knowing that history, mm -hmm. um, I said, this is a very Southern city, which is, it's a very Southern city. And you would think that, you know, I think that a lot of people when they migrated from the South during the Great Migration to California's, to New York, to Harlem, to Chicago, when they made the migration, you escaped some of the violence of segregation um, and Jim Crow in that era, but these cities didn't go untouched. Um, you know, it, it, well, like I mentioned, you know, you had Emmett Till who was in Chicago and while segregation space wasn't as violent, you still had, you still had a way to keep people apart. You know, you still felt some of what was happening in the South. So, um, but I can say this, Cincinnati is one of the most slept on cities in America. Cincinnati has the potential to be great. It has the potential and it has some of the greatest talent that's there and 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 that have stayed in that area for that very reason. Um, and I think that if we treat them well and if we progress and move forward in that community, then it could be just kind of one of the top places to live in America. But in also doing that, we have to recognize the biases that we might have in Cincinnati. Um, the, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm on to, I lived in OTR when I was there and learning the history, I moved there not knowing the history of OTR and learning about the riots and, and what happened in that community. It, it left me with a, a different kind of feeling of being in OTR now. Well, I did love the community, just knowing that this was a community that was devalued for a very long time. Um, and now we have suddenly found the value in it. And the people who were pushed into this community that was devalued. And I haven't seen the redlining maps in Cincinnati, so I could be wrong, correct me if I am. But um, you know, now these people will be left with without an opportunity to, to take advantage of all of this change and all this progression and investment into OTR. So hopefully, hopefully Cincinnati moves forward in recognizing all of the citizens and investing in everyone that's there. And and everyone is allowed to grow and have an opportunity in that community. 
But I love Cincinnati. It's my second home. Um, I literally just changed my license from Ohio to New Orleans, and that was only because they were going to find me, so I had to. But um, but it, it is a truly wonderful place, but we have to be careful as to how we progress with it so that we can progress with everyone in mind and not just a particular community. Sharice, Gibson, thank you for, for your insight and thank you for your work. Thank I, you. I know you have real work to do today. Yeah, I do. Hanging out with us. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So we're going to let you go and say goodbye. And again, we want to just thank you for joining us um, today. Yeah. And I, once again, I, please tell us, leave us with a few words there. If I can say anything, um, I would like everyone to watch the talk. Um, it's on the YouTube, WWL TV and on YouTube. There's also another documentary that I did recently in November. Uh, called The Story Behind the Standoff, or September, excuse me, The Story Behind the Standoff is about the shootout between the New Orleans Police Department and the Black Panther Party in New Orleans and the Desire Projects, um, and discussed how New Orleans missed an opportunity to embrace uh, the Panthers and the community that they were trying to help, um, even though they were in a more progressive political era with Moon Landry as mayor. Um, I think that is something that we can learn from today. Um, you know, we tried to show the parallels between the Black Panthers and the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's on, it's called The Story Behind the Standoff. It's on YouTube. And I actually have some new work coming out in May that I'll discuss hopefully with you guys in May. <laughs> I was gonna say, would you come, would you come back, Sharice? Yes. I'd love to yes. delve into that. Yeah. Yes, I do. And, and I know that something I just like to share with, you know, any journalist, don't be afraid to tell Black stories. Um, I know that we've been shunned for doing so. We've been told that you don't want to get the label of being a black reporter, but honestly, it, someone has to tell the stories. Someone has to talk about, you know, what this country was built on and the original Senate that it was built on. We have to be able to discuss these things and they're very important to discuss so we can show how we can dismantle it if we keep putting it to the side because of the fear of being uh, told that we couldn't tell these stories. Just like I encourage all of my Latinx um, people in America to discuss the stories of, of, of immigration, discuss stories of being undocumented, what it means to immigrate to this country. You know, just, I want everyone to discuss the stories of what's happening to minorities in America. You know, because if we don't talk about this, it'll continue to get swept under the rug. We'll have to keep having the talk. We'll have to keep being in these uncomfortable situations um, because we don't like to have those conversations. And when you're discussing it, people won't like it and people will be uncomfortable. But no one said that progression means being comfortable. You know, we have to discuss all of these things in order for our country to move forward. And it took us 400 years to get here. We can't do it overnight. Um, little by little, you know, including your podcast, including the book that you're all writing, little by little, that's how we make change in America. That is wonderful. And, and wise, wise words, Sharice. Thank um, you. Again, we thank you so much for, for being with us today. We do know you have to uh, go do your your day your day job, which is yeah. so full today, and um, we're just looking forward to talking with you further, uh, and we can't wait to sh to share uh, your your next documentary and get some Thank you. on that. That is so important. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank I look forward to sharing. You.
Thank, Thank you. you, Jennifer. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Yes. Have a great day. Okay. So Byron and I end every week. First of all, she was fascinating. Yeah, uh, she, she, she was, Jennifer. And I, I will tell you, Sharice, uh, she's she's not a, a very uh she's a seasoned reporter and anchor but she's not very old and she has i feel like she has wisdom beyond her her age she does absolutely and without prompt she touched on many themes in our book um which was very cool which also tells me i'm not going to guess her age but certainly a lot younger than we are um <laughs> but tells me that we're into some subject matter that really crosses a lot of generations and that's, that's important. And I also think um, it's cool that young people right now are standing up and we know this from our daughters. Um, anecdotally, we know it from others, but she's, I mean, she's kind of taking things to the next level in terms of the issues that she's digging into. She certainly is one of the one of the things that that strikes me is that she's unapologetic for covering the stories that matter to diverse audiences, and um, that's a that's a voice that we need in in America because uh, we we do need to cover you know all the news. We New York Times used to, used to say that you know we have all the news that's fit fit to print. Right. Yeah, uh, and so they back back then it was a few few a few pieces of news that that maybe were not fit to fit to print. But um, just so so thankful for journalists like Sharice Gibson and 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 others uh, who are really bringing to light issues that 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 we need to understand in order to move forward. As she said, so I will give us our hopeful moment for today. A hopeful um, moment. I love it. I love the hopeful part of moment. it is. Um, a rest in peace. So that's not so hopeful, but the, but the story of the lady is. So this week we lost a woman, the world did. Um, Mama Sarah, Grandma Obama, who was one of our president's grandmothers. And I had the opportunity, she passed this week at 99 years old. I had the opportunity two years ago to spend some time with her in her home in Kenya which was the opportunity of a lifetime that fell into my lap. Um, while she passed, she was a grandmother to the future president of the United States. On her estate where she lives, she's the she was the most senior member. Barack's father has buried her he, there. He used to spend summers with his grandmother and his relatives, many of whom live there. And what I learned from her and what was hopeful is Frankly, I met with her during the time when our nation was headed towards the ugliness that we've recently seen. But she was still hopeful about America. She was still hopeful that her grandson had become president, that Americans were going to be maybe smarter than we were at this moment a couple of years ago. And she told me two things that I still laugh about. I showed up wearing pants. She said to her translator that my life would be better if I wore more dresses and if I stayed long enough, she'd have some made for me. She didn't know that usually I do. <laughs> she also touched on the point that I'm left-handed, as is our former president. And she said that probably we should have married since we were both left-handed. <laughs> I told her I didn't think Michelle would like that too much, with all due respect to the great Michelle Obama. 
but I found her to be a hopeful person and to really have lifted the spirits of those around her. So I say God bless to Sarah Obama and, um, and thankfully she got to be the grandma of one of our greatest leaders. Oh, what an amazing story. Jennifer, I did see pictures of you and, and Grandmama Obama. Uh, and, you know, it was just fascinating that you were actually there um, and could interact with the grandmother of the, of the President of the United States, which was really amazing. So we know we thank you for acknowledging her in a hopeful moment. You know, one loss like that is, you know, when we're connected to humanity, one loss is a loss that we all feel. So thank you for that hopeful moment. And thank you, Jennifer, for such a great show. Wow. It was good. I mean, it's all about the guests and it she is. was a great one. It is. Well, until next time, next week, uh, we will see you. And Jennifer, again, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see you maybe sooner. We're, we're getting a little bit closer. We are. And don't forget to check out our book at www.hopeinterrupted.com. We're in pre-sales. It's going great. If you haven't had a chance to check it out or place your order, we encourage you to do so. Thank you.